I, I'm so proud of Derek and Lydia. I'm so proud of what God is doing through um, uh, the Arnolds and their marriage. And so um, God be praised as we go all in, all in, all in. This is the biggest thing that we've ever done in the history of our church. Uh, it's a series that I pray and hope will change our church family for God's glory and for the good of his people. And, and all in is uh, your elders and your staff's best effort at discerning which good works God wants us to walk in for the future of our church. And so for the next two years, we're going to be focusing uh, all of our giving here at Windsor Road into one fund. That is for years 2014 and 2015. And this is a single fund that includes our regular operating budget. Uh, It includes uh, construction and renovation to our facility and specifically for our children's ministry. And it includes significant local and global outreach. And um, our goal is to grow our culture of generosity and raise $4.5 million over the next two years. And this will be approximately uh, $2 million more than what our giving has typically been over a two-year period. And so my prayer is that 100% of our church family here at Windsor Road will participate in this initiative. If you haven't had a chance to check out our church's website, uh, we've got a a revitalized uh, website uh, that's up. Um, We've uh, got booklets that look like this that are in the pouches in front of you. And if you uh, um, uh, didn't receive a copy of uh, one last week, please take one home with you. And on page uh, uh, 14, you will learn a little more about uh, Eason's story. And uh, it's just an amazing, amazing story of what God is doing through this uh, man of God as well. And so we want you to be aware of that. And then also there's a commitment card that you'll see in the pouch in front of you as well. Please take that uh, home with you. And in a few weeks, Uh, I'm going to be challenging you to make a commitment uh, to the Lord on November the 17th, specifically. Uh, It'll be a life-changing Sunday for our church. Now, we have uh, been hosting information gatherings here uh, for the past six or seven weeks, and... um, uh, and you may have questions, uh, even if you've been to an information gathering, you may have other questions. And I just want to give you the heads up that on Tuesday here in the foyer at lunch, uh, we're going to have another information meeting. We're going to provide lunch here. Uh, I'll be here. Our staff will be gathered. And uh, we would just be, uh, just be happy to get a chance to uh, give you all the information that we can possibly share with you. Or if you'd like information one-on-one. If you'd like uh, to sit down with me or have an appointment, I'd love to have the opportunity to do that. We want to make sure that you're fully informed about what's going on here with our series, All In. All In. And as I said earlier, uh, today's theme is All In the Gospel. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and I'm going to be reading verses 44 through 46. You'll find those verses on page 819 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please take that copy that's in the pouch in front of you. Receive it as a gift from Windsor Road. Matthew 14, uh, excuse me, Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. 
Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. This is God's word. You ever heard of a guy named Ronald Wayne? Anybody know this guy? Ron Wayne? Yeah. Well, let me introduce you to him. In 1976, Ronald Wayne, along with Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, started Apple. That's who he is. That's who Ronald Wayne. In fact, Ronald Wayne drew the very first logo for Apple. There it is. It's a little busy, but it was the first logo. And he was about 20 years older than, you know, those two 1970s hippies. And Ronald Wayne was given 10% of the company. And he did... He was received that much to compensate him for some of the paperwork and the filings, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he was given 10% of the company in order to uh, be the tiebreaker if Jobs and Wozniak ever disagreed. And Ronald Wayne held 10% of Apple for two weeks. And for several reasons... He just didn't see any future with these guys. And so, two weeks later, he sold his 10% share of Apple for a whopping $800. (laughs) And today, that share would be worth, anybody want to take a guess? $1.5 No way low on that, Carl. $37 billion. (laughs) Give or take a billion. (laughs) I'll take it too. Yeah. Holy MacBook Batman. (laughs) Had he only known. Had he only known. If only he had seen what Steve and Steve saw. And if only he had seen what the two in our parables saw. Can you you put yourself in that field for just a moment? Just, Just for a moment. Imagine yourself in that field. You're going about your daily routine and you stumble onto something of innumerable worth. I mean, a treasure of priceless proportions. And you, you shake your head in, in disbelief. I mean, can, can you just for one moment 
grasp the thrill and the the rush of a life-changing find. I mean, if for just a few seconds you can grasp that, then you've got a good chance of understanding that these very brief but powerful parables of Christ in Matthew 13. Uh, Back in the time of Christ, and really in many cultures today, people deposit their treasures uh, in, in places other than banks. You know, I don't know if you know this or not, but not all banks are safe. So they would bury their, their treasures, their riches, and their property. And so they would hide it, you know, some, some under the mattress or some in the wall or some in a crawl space. And especially during wartime, where land would exchange hands several times, Owners would have to hide their riches. And, 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 and I'm not talking about dollar bills or, or even currency. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about gold. I'm talking about silver. I'm talking about you know, precious gems. And, and well, you know, some owners would hide their treasures, but they would forget. They might hide them in several places on their property, you know. And, and, but they, they would forget where they put their treasures and so in this first parable, this laborer is in the field, and he's plowing. And, and then the blade of his uh, plow just rams into something and stops. And so, you know, he's got to get out from around that plow, and he goes and he checks it out. There's a box. What's that? Shakes the dust off and cracks open the box, and his eyes widen like saucers. I mean, he's never seen so much gold and silver and gems in his life. I mean, he just is, I mean, 10 times worth of his lifetime earnings. I mean, would, would pale in the comparison to what's going on in that box. And he looks in, and then you know what he does next, don't you? It's what you would do. You look in, and then his eyes widen, and then what? He looks up, he looks around. Is anybody else looking? Anybody else see this? No one. No one. He's all by himself. He's got this incredible find and tucks it tightly into his chest. I mean, this guy has just won the lottery. And then what does he do? What's he do? He rehides it. See? He rehides it. And you know why, don't you? He's going to make a purchase. He, so he rushes home and he puts everything up for sale his wife is going what are you doing are you having a midlife crisis did they have such things in the first century what are you what are you doing but he's not talking he's just happy and he impoverishes himself to purchase the field the whole field the whole so he's not simply going to just buy that cubic yard of dirt where the treasure was hidden he buys everything in the field including the sinkholes and the dung heaps and the poison ivy and the field mice and the mosquitoes and all that came with it too he's immersed in joy but it's a humble joy isn't it this guy he didn't go about arrogantly parading his knowledge in front of everyone no He hid the treasure and then he made plans to buy the field before anybody could figure out what he was up to. And we all know why, don't we? Don't we? Because what he found in that field was worth far more than what would be paid for the field. And thus, it was a very, very easy decision. 
And Jesus said, well, the kingdom of heaven is like that. And then Jesus said again, as if to say, I'm not kidding. The kingdom of heaven is like this. There's this merchant. He's in the pearl business. It's his job. He's a road warrior. You'll often go to the Red Sea because that's where the pretty common pearls are. And he'll trade, buy, and sell. Every now and then, he'll take a trip to the Persian Gulf because that's where the big and beautiful pearls are. And even on occasion, he'll catch a shipment in from India. He's always on the hunt for quality pearls. He, he buys, he sells, he trades. He, it's how he makes his living. He's a journeyman pearl trader, a road warrior, and he's done pretty well. He's done pretty well. And so one day he shows up early before the market opens. He'd always done that. Looks over the stock, examines everything, and just about ready to just kind of turn away. But then it catches his eye. He sees it. It's beautiful. It's huge. It is by far the finest, most glorious pearl his eyes have ever seen. It's got to be fake. But no, it's not fake. He, he's in the pearl business. He knows pearls. No, it's real. It's real. And he sees it, but he can't believe anybody else can't see it. But nobody else sees it. Just him. He sees it. And all of a sudden, his surprise, he turns to, well, he just gets giddy. He just gets deliriously getting. So, you know, so he sells everything, including the other pearls that he has. And he sells his, not only the pearls, he sells the whole business. He sells his home. He sells his wagons. What else can I sell? Can I sell my children? No, I can't do that. He sells his livestock. He, sell, he liquidates everything, which means he's going to get a haircut on what he's selling but that's okay. He just wants this one pearl. Just this one pearl. This pearl of great price. And he gets it. And because he gets it, he is elated. He floats all the way home. Well, wait a minute. He doesn't have a home. But no matter, he has the pearl. He has the pearl. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. You get it? Huh? A treasure? A pearl? A laborer? A merchant? One of them wasn't even looking for it. The other had been searching for it all his life. One was poor, the other not so poor. So whatever the kingdom of heaven is, it involves both commoners and high-enders and everybody in between. Two parables. They're a little different, but they tell the same story, and the repetition is for emphasis. Both make a discovery. Both have an epiphany. Both see something of immense value and beauty and splendor, and both see something that others don't see. And both understand that there are no half measures to securing those treasures. There's no trying it out for 30 days. 
both see that it's an all or nothing venture. And there's risk. They could be wrong. But they make a decision based on the evidence they see. And the decision they make would be one that would alter the course of their lives forever. I mean, it would not simply change their future, but it would change the present. (laughs) How they live, how they parent. If they're married, it would change their marriage. Nothing in their lives would remain untouched by this decision. Can you hear what Jesus is saying in these verses about the kingdom of heaven? He's saying, here it is, the kingdom of heaven is so valuable that it is worth sacrificing anything and everything in order to gain That's what he's saying. The kingdom of heaven, it is so valuable that losing everything on earth but gaining the kingdom, it's a happy trade. The kingdom of heaven, it's worth so much that the apostle Paul would say in Philippians 3, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. When it comes to the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says that there's no price too high and no sacrifice too great because the benefits by far outweigh the price. Jesus is saying that having the all-knowing, all-powerful, saving reign of Christ in your heart is so valuable that we're willing to lose everything in order to have it and that it's a joyful sacrifice. That's that's what Jesus is saying in these verses. Now, for the rest of our message, I would just like to answer three questions that come from these two short parables. And they're questions about the kingdom of heaven. Question number one is, what's the kingdom of heaven about? Question number two is, what does the kingdom of heaven demand And question number three, what does the kingdom of heaven offer? That's where we're going here. Question one, what's the kingdom of heaven about? What's it about? Well, here's what it's about. The kingdom of heaven is about a who, not a where. It's about a who, not a where. So when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven or, or when you see in Scripture the kingdom of God, When Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about a set of geographical coordinates. He's not talking about a land mass. He's not talking about physical boundaries. It's not like Sarah and I get up on Saturday morning and say, hey, let's drive over to the kingdom of heaven today. That's not what it's about. The kingdom of heaven is not a where, it's a who. And it concerns this question, who is in charge of my life? Who gets to call the shots? Who rules my heart? The kingdom of heaven asserts Christ's unchallenged authority over my life. The kingdom of heaven is about me coming under the influence and leadership of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven means I abdicate my kingdom and I enter his kingdom, which means there's really only two kingdoms at play here, the kingdom of Randy or the kingdom of Christ. And Christ's kingdom is designed to have Christ in the center. 
Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. And you can take that into every area of your life. Meaning, my marriage has come from Christ. My marriage is to be lived unto Christ. And my marriage exists because of the grace of Christ. You can take that to mean your children. My children are from Christ. My children belong to Christ. And my children will only be what they were meant to be through his love and his grace. And you can take that into your possessions. And you can take that into your vocation. They are from Christ. They belong to Christ. And they are kept by means of his care. There's nothing in your life that does not belong to Christ when you have entered the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven means that Christ sits in the captain's chair of my life. His ruling power enters my life. Listen, Christianity is not a set of codes. When I was a boy scout, I was a scout because I adhered to a code. A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient. Right? That's a list. Christianity is not that. Christianity is about a person who rules my heart, who has entered my life, and now I've experienced a life change, and I'm shaken, and I'm humbled, and it affects my motives and my goals and my hopes. The kingdom of heaven affects my motives. So to belong to the kingdom means that Christ really is the reason I do everything I do. I I want to know him. I want to be part of his work on earth. I want to please him with my life. I want to value what he values. I want his purpose to define me and who I am What I do to to be in the kingdom of heaven means that my decisions are more about what pleases him than what pleasures me, my motives. The kingdom of heaven not only affects my motives, but my goals, meaning that I willingly submit every other attainable glory in my life to the one glory that's captured my heart, the glory of Christ. And so I want his desires kept. I want his purposes to prevail. I I no longer act and speak and choose and exist for the purposes of my own glory. No, no, because I found someone way more wonderful and way more beautiful and way, way more splendid and way more glorious. He is what gives my life direction and joy. The kingdom of heaven affects my motives, my goals, and my hopes. My hopes, what gets you up in the morning? The kingdom of heaven becomes the driving force in my life. The kingdom of heaven is what gets me up in the morning. When Christ is my hope, he becomes the one person upon whom I rest my life. And so I act on his wisdom. I speak on his grace. I trust in his promises. And I rely on his presence. And I go after all of the good things that he has promised simply because I trust him. So I'm not manipulating and controlling and threatening my way through life to get what I want because I've already found what I want in Christ. The kingdom of heaven. Which kingdom is dominating your life right now?
Is it the kingdom of self? Or is it the kingdom of Christ? Well, what's this good life that you daily pursue? Who is on the throne of that good life? What motivates you throughout the day? What goal is worthy of the, of the one life you have? If we saw a video of you last month, and if we heard what you said and why you said what you said, what would we notice? If we saw how you made decisions and related to others, noted what you were interested in and fought for, what kingdom would that reveal? If we saw how you dealt with responsibility and invested your free time, if we saw you in both your busy moments and your quiet moments, if we even heard the silent conversations that you have with yourself all throughout the day, would we conclude that Christ is the king of your life? Would we? Is it possible that your Christianity may in fact exclude Christ? Is it possible that the, that the little kingdom of Randy is alive and well, smack dab, in the big kingdom of Christ? The kingdom of heaven, it's, it's a who, not a where. Question one. Question number two. What does the kingdom of heaven demand? What does it demand? And Jesus is very clear that the kingdom of heaven demands an all-in commitment, not a little-by-little experiment. An all-in commitment, not a little-by-little experiment. So it's an all-or-nothing proposition here, right? You never, you never enter the kingdom of heaven by degrees or incrementally. You, you know, Jesus never barters by saying, look, you know, give me 20% of your life this month and let's see how that goes and then the next month we'll shoot for 40, etc., etc. He never does that at all. It's all in or nothing. It's about total transformation. It's a conversion to a new dimension, a new realm. Either Christ is your king or you are and there's no middle ground and you know why, don't you? Jesus himself said that whenever you split your loyalties, he always gets the short end. You cannot serve two masters. You will love the one and hate the other. And by the way, uh, our world really dislikes how absolute this sounds. You know, our, our world would like to cherry pick the Bible. Our world likes to approach the Bible and kind of take it in degrees and incrementally. Our world likes to say, well, you know, there are some things in the Bible I like, and, but there are some things that I don't like. And Oh, really? Well, on what basis do you decide that any verse is right or wrong for you? What? You know, either the Bible has evaluative authority over your life or you have a value of authority over the Bible. Which means that if you're a Christian, of course there will be things in the Bible that will grate on you. Of course there will be. Listen, if you don't struggle to believe God's word, then you're probably not reading God's word. <laughs> Read some things in the Bible, you go, how, could, how is that possible? Oh, that, that, that's, I just, my goodness. It's like, you know. Anybody ever see the TV series Breaking Bad? You see that? Am I the only one here? Is this now? Okay. Yeah. yeah this is Walter White, this kind of bland chemistry teacher who, you know, over the course of five seasons, just, he just turns evil. I mean, just evil. Listen, listen. 
Walter White doesn't have anything on the book of Judges. You know, I, I, I think they stole the plot from the book of Judges. I mean, the book of Judges doesn't begin, you know, even on a bland note like Walter White is. I mean, the book of Judges starts bad and then just breaks and gets badder and badder and badder. I mean, it's just terrible. You read that and you go, wow, God, what is that all about? You know, the book of Job, that's a hard book. That's hard. Uh, and have you not read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16? Peter, the apostle Peter, says this about the apostle Paul's letters. He says this, Peter says this. He says, there are some things in them, that's Paul's letters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Listen. If the Apostle Peter said that some of what the Apostle Paul wrote is hard to understand, believe him. Believe him and and make peace with that, all right? And trust Christ with that, with the understanding that biblical faith is never, ever a blind leap in the dark. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith never, ever uh, calls us to make a blind leap in the dark. Rather, biblical faith is always a decision based on evidence. On evidence. The kingdom of heaven. It's 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 about a who, not a where. The kingdom of heaven, it's an all-in commitment, not a little-by-little experiment. And question number three, what does the kingdom of heaven offer? And the answer, right there at the beginning of the parable, joy. Joy. The parable says, in his joy, verse 44, he went and sells. Wow. Note that joy came before the sacrifice, not after the sacrifice. So the scripture doesn't say, well, he sacrificed everything by selling all, and then he felt joy. No, he said he felt joy, and then in his joy, he went and, and, and sold everything. Now, now how, how can that apply to us? How is it possible for us to have joy? Because right now, we don't see Christ glorified, and we don't experience the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, how, how can you have joy when you see things being sold off? I mean, these two lost capital. Right? Here's how. In their joy, they sacrificed everything because they knew what was coming. They had done the math. They had done the accounting. Both realized that whatever they gave up, it would be a sacrifice, and yet it, yet it wasn't a sacrifice because What was gained far outweighed the price. So the path to joy came in the counting. The counting. And I think that's why the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You know what that means? That means Paul logged into his spiritual bank account. Hmm? He typed in his username, typed in the password, and he saw his accounts. And he checked on those accounts daily. 
Every day he logged in and counted his treasures in Christ. Every day he logged in and counted his blessings in Christ. Every day he logged in and and counted the beauty and the splendor of what Christ did for him in his death and burial and resurrection. And every day he logged in and in the words of the poet John Donne, he said this, take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free nor ever chased, except you ravish me. Every day, Paul logged in and was ravished by the riches of Christ. Question, do you think about your daily prayer time or your daily Bible reading time? Do you think about that, you know, as a spiritual chore or just kind of a religious task? Or do you think of it as your opportunity to be ravished by the goodness of God, to reckon and tally and count all of the blessings and all of the gifts and all of the spiritual riches that have been given to you by our very gracious God? And as you gaze upon these riches, you then pray, O Lord, how could I ever fail to love you And thank you in light of this. You count. Counting. You count what you have in Christ. And and, and then then humility and gratitude just overwhelm you because you have real treasure. And the reason why you have real treasure is because you have the real king. When you you have the real king, you're going to get the real treasure. And when that's in place, then... Peace and joy follow. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Let's say that together as a church on three. One, two, three. Though our outer self is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now hear me. If you do not have a robust belief in a real afterlife, all you're left with is the first half of that verse. Paul holds to a real afterlife. He says as such in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There it is. If only Ron Wayne knew then what he knows now. Hmm? What would he give to get that 10% back, right? 800 bucks? 8 million bucks? Huh? If only. If only. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. You've already been told by your king what his kingdom is worth. You've already been told. We're a people of destiny. This is why we're doing what we're doing. This is why we go all in. 
This is why we're supporting Eason. This is why we support Derek and Lydia. This is why we're sending out short-term missions teams. This is why we want to be Unit 4's best friend in terms of school readiness over the next two years. And this is why, this is why we want to have an excellent facility for our children. This is why. (sighs) Frankly, there's no other reason if not for the reason Jesus gives us in his kingdom because it's just, it's just too much work. <laughs> and furthermore, Jesus said that this kingdom, this, this kingdom that is, is worth eternal weight of glory, this kingdom is right in front of your face right now. It's among you. And so you have a decision to make. Like right now, there's a window of opportunity. This, this guy didn't have all day to figure out what, well, should I, what should I do with this? He didn't have all day to figure that out. The guy with the pearl, he didn't have all day. He had to make a decision right there, right then. What's he going to do? Is the guy going to go back to his plow? Really? Is he going to go back to his plow? Is he, is he going to go shopping for other pearls? Really? No, no, no. The find of a lifetime is right here, right now. The gospel is God, people, Christ, respond. And now's the time. Now's the time to respond. Some of you have been coming and you've been singing, but you, you have yet to respond to the king. Let me tell you how you can do that right now. First, it means admitting that Christ has not been the center of your life. And to say, I want him to be in the center of my motives and my goals and my hopes. I want that. It means acknowledging that God came in Christ. He came to restore Eden. He came to remake the the new heavens and the new earth. And he did that by being all in, by suffering on the cross and giving his life so that I wouldn't have to pay my sin debt. It means accepting Christ as the unchallenged authority of my life, receiving this free gift by grace through faith and trusting him. And it means inviting him into your life to take the captain's chair of your heart. The Apostle John put it this way, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God of God. How do we become a child of God? John tells us. You believe and you receive and you become. And I want to challenge you to do business with God right here, right now. And we are going to be up here after services. Our elders will be up here. I'll be up here. And I would be happy to talk with you and pray with you. Is Jesus the king of your heart? You need to go all in on that. All in on that. And some of you have. And so your first next decision is to demonstrate your loyalty and allegiance to the king in baptism. That's what these towels are up here for. Tonight at 6.30, I want to invite you to come to the Stevens Family Y. It's exactly one mile west of the church campus on Windsor Road. 
You just go uh, you know, through the light there, uh, uh, Duncan, and over that beautiful bridge, and, <laughs> and you see the beautiful Y, all right? And um, the, the swimming pool area and, and, uh, is, is uh, been reserved for our church. That's the only area that's going to be open. But uh, I want to invite you today. Make the decision now, right now, today. You come up here. Here's the, here's the process. I don't have a registration card for you to fill out. I don't even have a scripted sinner's prayer for you to pray. I don't have that. Jesus is king of your heart. You come up and you take a towel. That's your registration. You co- and I, don't have, I have no idea how many baptisms we're going to have tonight. But I want to challenge you to settle this thing. You have a window of opportunity right here, right now. You come up before you leave this church campus. You come up and you take one of these towels. And you bring it with you tonight, 6.30. And we're going to have baptisms. And uh, it's going to be a wonderful celebration. And then uh, we're going to have a family swim. So if you've already been baptized and you want to come and support, uh, you, you come and, and we'll watch the baptisms and we'll have a family swim uh, there at the Y. And then we've got some pizza in the foyer. That's what's going on tonight. And we'll conclude around 8.15, 8.30. It's a school night. We know that. But that's what's happening, okay? You come and you take a towel. And it is time right now to go all in and receive the king, enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen.